0: Hello, listeners, and thank you for joining us today at Sobertown Podcast. Sobertown is your one-stop shop for everything to do with sobriety. Check out Todd's Sober Toolbox and Blogs, where he explains in great detail exactly what happens to our brains and body. There's also a lot of helpful information on triggers and cravings and just everything to do with how to combat this journey that we are on. I want to give a huge shout-out to the I Am Sober community, IAS. It is a daily counter app where people support and share and your alcohol free days grow into milestones. So there's lots of celebrating that happens there. Um, I am not a medical professional. I am simply a sober, experienced media person. But the reason I do this is to try and help those out there who may feel alone, may feel really scared and fearful, or just may need help just to stay sober. And I'm thrilled today because I'm really excited, listeners, because I do have a medical professional that is joining with me. Her name is Dr. Anna Lemke and her book is Dopamine Nation. Good afternoon to you.
1: Good afternoon.
0: Thank you so much for joining me. It's it's a thrill to have you here.
1: Well, I'm so excited to be here. Um, this is a great community you all are building.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, now with Dopamine Nation, it's just been released in August. I, I can go on about the award-winning award winning new york times bestseller but i know i think you're quite a humble woman because we had dr lemke come to one of our i am sober community zooms and everybody was just thrilled to have her there and said my goodness we wish this was recorded so now listeners here she is and this is your chance so let's talk a little bit about the book the book is basically about the balance and understanding of pleasure and pain so take it from there for us
1: yeah so the book really looks at the neuroscience of how we process pleasure and pain and how our brain works very hard to keep pleasure and pain in balance. And the basic premise is that we now live in a time of overwhelming abundance for which our primitive pleasure pain balance was not adapted, such that we've all become vulnerable to the problem of addiction in different ways. So what I do in the book is I explore the neuroscience of pleasure and pain. And I use that as a framework or a lens through which to understand the ways in which we're all engaging in compulsive overconsumption, which is actually making us more unhappy, whether or not yeah. we're on the extreme end of being addicted or just on the you know, more subtle end of, of being very, very attached to our smartphones.
0: Yeah, it's interesting there because you do talk about the fact that you've studied this just what technology is doing in 2021, and the way that it is a 24/7 attached to us, always in the back pockets, or always with the children. I don't have my own children, but I, I know that I have nephews who my sister tries to get away from these and limits their time because that's my my thought is, gee, you know, this repetitive behavior, they're going to be looking for more and more rewards when they play these silly fortnights and everything else, and and that's what you talk about too is the the process of the reward. know that we think we're going to get right so talk to me just go through that 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 i call it a seesaw to to sort of get to homeostasis
1: sure yeah no so i mean to me one of the most interesting findings in neuroscience in the past 75 years is that pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain and what that means is that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain and pleasure and pain work like opposite sides of the balance So when we do something pleasurable or reinforcing or rewarding, our balance tips slightly to the side of pleasure, and we get the release of dopamine in a part of our brain called the reward pathway. Now, dopamine is a neurotransmitter. It has a variety of different functions in the brain, but one of the most important functions is its role in pleasure, motivation, and reward. But the thing about this pleasure pain balance is that it does not want to remain tipped very long to the side of pleasure or the side of pain. It wants to remain level. And as soon as there's any deviation from neutrality, the brain's own re-regulating mechanisms will kick into place in order to restore a level balance. And here's the key piece to understand. The way that the balance restores the neutral position is by tipping an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. So if I have a drink, I get a little release of dopamine, I get a tip to my pleasure side. No sooner has that happened than my brain down regulates my own dopamine production and my own dopamine receptor transmission. And essentially I go into a dopamine deficit state. So I don't just return dopamine levels to their baseline, I go below baseline. And I imagine this as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the gremlins like it on the balance, so they don't get off right when the balance is level. They stay on until the balance is tipped and equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And that is the come down, the hangover, the after effect. Now, if we wait long enough, those gremlins hop off and balance is again restored. But if we don't wait, if we try to maintain or recreate that original feeling by ingesting more alcohol over days to months to years, we eventually end up with enough balance, enough gremlins on the pain side of the balance to fill this whole room. In other words, we change our brains. We change our hedonic or our joy set point we ultimately shift the balance so that it's chronically weighted to the side of pain. Those gremlins camp out there, they bring their tents and their barbecues and they're not leaving anytime soon. And then we have a different brain and that different brain essentially is in a constant state of pain, experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. Now we have this incredible physiologic drive to ingest alcohol, not to feel good, but just to feel normal, just to restore a level balance. And when we're not drinking alcohol, we're walking around with a balance tilted to the side of pain. And we feel like we have depression, or we have anxiety, or we have insomnia, and we're just using alcohol to escape those feelings, what we cannot see is that it's actually alcohol causing that problem in the first place.
0: Yeah, that's so true, isn't it, that we do get, you know, we say that now we've learned, um, I think Craig Beck's book, Alcohol Lied to Us, and (laughs) boy, did it ever, because, you know, we, we think that it's going to make us more sociable, make us funnier, you know, relax, and sure, it will do that for twenty minutes, Right. and then we're all on the chase, aren't we? After that's
1: that, right.
0: that's right. Exactly. And it just sort of gets to a point of like, I want to talk about the the tolerance, like you said, and the neuro adap- adaptation. Is that what you were just talking about there? Yeah, where... that,
1: that's the gremlins, right? To the yeah, the gremlins. Brain. Yes, brain. Yes,
0: yeah. Yes. And then the effects of the addiction on dopamine and the receptors. Um, just talk a little bit about that because you were talking about. You know, the people, the places and things. I mean, these are all associated because we can't run and hide forever, forever, can we, from our addiction? We have to, like we with alcohol. I can't avoid restaurants. I can't avoid function. I can't avoid, you know, going out and, and doing things that I enjoy doing.
1: Right. I mean, to be totally honest, when we're first getting into recovery and we're first abstaining, we probably do have to avoid people's places and things because it's just, it's, it's too much to ask ourselves to both withstand the physiologic drive to drink again, that is to restore the balance and also be exposed to all of these triggers. But you're right. At some point we have to be back into the world. And so, you know, we're up against a lot because there are so many triggers to use, right? Advertisements of their friends drinking, almost every social event. The key, I think, to understanding what's going on with the triggers is to realize that our pleasure pain balance remembers what triggered that initial deviation to the pleasure side. And those gremlins never entirely disappear once they've been created. And that that pleasure pain balance can tilt to one side or the other, even when we're just reminded of drinking. So we don't even have to drink to tilt that balance, just passing by the bar where we used to drink or seeing a friend we used to drink with or what's called euphoric recall, just remembering drinking. That in and of itself, that thought Or that that trigger, that symbol, can cause our pleasure pain balance to tilt slightly to the side of pleasure. That releases a little bit of dopamine. And here's the really key thing: right after that trigger, our dopamine levels don't return back to baseline. They go below baseline, and we're in a little mini dopamine deficit state. And that's craving right? That's what we feel that in our whole body, like it can even be kind of, you know, shaking and chills and this overwhelming feeling like I need to get a drink now. This is the only way I'm going to make myself feel better. And in a way it's true because, you know, the memory of the alcohol is what spiked the dopamine up in the first place. And then again, you get this little dopamine deficit state below baseline and a drink really would, temporarily bring dopamine levels up again but that's exactly what we need to avoid in order to get out of that vicious cycle
0: and that's where that chasing comes in trying to get back to the original feeling right that gave you that immediate rush of dopamine yeah and you just talked about the anticipation and the craving the dopamine mini spike that can be an anticipation of the future reward.
1: That's right, exactly. Because that's Follow- exactly
0: what you've got your eye on, right? right that's that's, that's right. the prize,
1: yeah. Yeah, but the, the thing that's so insidious about it is that mm. reminder of drinking doesn't just increase dopamine a little bit. It's not as much as the reward itself, but it's a little bit, but it's followed by a, the dopamine going below baseline. So now we're yeah. craving, right? So we're in that whole loop and we haven't even had a drink yet, right? Mm. That's what's mm. so powerful
0: yeah look it is and and we've we were talking about just before we came on about neuropathways and just building and having a new rewire and i've sort of come to the conclusion now i've been at this nearly nine months next week and i look at it as an thank you an old road down the side that's all cracked and needs repairing they're my old grim ones, and now i want to build this beautiful new freeway with four lanes each way that's a smooth ride With no memories of going, you know, in the ditch off the old road. That's kind of like my goal. Um, put it to, put it to you sort of as in simple layman's terms as as much as I possibly can. You know, um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add about that because we slip right back all the time into that, you know, compulsive behavior. Slips are quite normal. We've talked Mm -hmm. about this in previous podcasts. They're part of it. And, and sometimes you can feel like that person on the hamster wheel, how am I ever going to break, break free of this just never ending cycle? So what do you say to your patients about when they come and say, Dr. Olympia I just don't know what to do.
1: I can't kick this. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's hard. Um, and it's really varies from person to person. Some people, you know, are able to abstain and get into sustained recovery and it seems like it's not that hard for them. And other people are chronic relapsers and that's really tough. You know, I, first of all, what I say is don't give up hope, you know, keep on trying. Yeah. Um, you know, the more times you try, the more likely you are to succeed. And I really believe that that's true. I've also seen incredible miracles happen. People who were on the verge literally of death and have been able to get into decades long recovery. Um, the other thing that I would say is that you know, it's very important to put what I call self-binding strategies in place and to not expect that you're going to be able to change your behavior without changing your environment, because this is really a, you know, a dopamine saturated world. It's not a world that is friendly to recovery. So we really need to create a bubble such that, you know, in our own homes and our lives Mm -hmm. and our social networks to protect ourselves from this really crazy world, frankly. And there are lots of different ways to do that. And, you know, the tricks that I know are all things I've learned from my patients in recovery. Um, I categorize self-finding broadly as space, time, and meaning, but basically it's just creating physical and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice so that we have a little bit more time between feeling desire and acting on that desire to kind of change our choice The other things that I recommend to people are kind of um, counterintuitive, but when you think about the pleasure-pain balance and the way that alcohol releases dopamine all of a sudden in the reward pathway and then leads to neuroadaptation and this dopamine deficit state, what's really fascinating to me is that if you actually intentionally press on the pain side of the balance in mild to moderate doses you can trick your body into starting to upregulate its own dopamine and actually tilt your homeostasis toward the side of pleasure, which is really exciting and counterintuitive. Because when we're in early recovery, especially we're feeling bad and we're thinking, oh, I should do something to make myself feel better. If I can't drink, I'll watch Netflix or I'll eat a cookie. But in some ways that just plays right into that same problem where you're kind of titillating the reward pathway and never quite getting to where you wanna go. So a counterintuitive thing to do is to actually do something that's hard. Go on a walk, um, you know, take an ice cold water bath, um, read a challenging um, book that's not you know, a fiction um, page turner, but something that stretches you. Do something that makes you anxious, do something that you're uncomfortable doing. Um, do something that helps other people. That's effortful for you. Play the piano, um, you know. Write that that great American novel that you've been meaning to write. Something that's hard and that you don't want to do, and but, and thereby get your gremlins hopping on the pleasure side of the balance instead.
0: That's exactly what we've been saying about re-embracing your inner child. Go back to doing doing something you did. When you were younger, it might be just that. You played the piano, you gave it away, or a musical instrument. It may be a sport. I mean, I took up niching again after to do something with my hands. They were scarves, admittingly, but it worked, you know. (laughs) It was something to do. So all my friends back in Australia got scarves. So, I mean, it's a great, great point that you make because I know the advice that I was given is you must keep yourself busy. Yeah, because you've got to replace that time that you were spending with the mental gymnastics of how am I going to get my drink oh you're preparing your life for the next drink no matter where you went yeah and that's such a relief now and again that's where the anxiety the depression and everything builds you get yourself in such a state over wanting this this substance called alcohol when I look back I just shake my head at myself but now I know better but we still have to work at it i do understand that and you said here that um the self-binding is not fail safe and i agree with you there but it it is a great idea just to put i mean it's just another tool isn't it really we use when you said like we need to take a step back and just when you get the cravings and just stop and we use halt you know if i'm hungry well you know how that goes right yeah correct Yeah. yeah and then i also use the one that annie grace has which is act um and that's another good one too that a lot of us know about but you talk a lot about you know the opioid I mean we've got addictions rampant in America at the moment the opioid crisis I mean I'm I'm sure even with your with your patients slash clients are you seeing them come in younger as well as far as adolescents
1: I mean you know rates of addiction are going up all over the world, global deaths due to addiction have increased 50% and more than half of those deaths are occurring in people under the age of 50. So this this is a terrible modern plague. And yes, you're absolutely right that younger people are being affected in higher numbers than other age groups. Although interestingly, we're seeing more and more older people and retirees who are developing late life addiction, which is an entirely new pattern. It used to be if you were going to develop addiction, you would see signs and symptoms in late adolescence, young adulthood. Now we're seeing more and more people who are really able to consume in moderation until middle or older age. And then they lose whatever strategies that they were using that were working previously, um, stop working for them. Again, I think in part because alcohol has become more ubiquitous and more potent. So if you look at technology, what technology has allowed um, in all drugs, including drugs that didn't even exist before, like video games, drugs are more ubiquitous, more accessible, more potent, and more novel. So you've got every variation, you know, let's so just stick with alcohol. I mean, how many different possibilities of drinks are there today? You know, it's, it's just insane. Um, and that's true for every drug on the planet. And just, you know, when you get bored of one, they've got a new flavor for you to try or a new combination. Or So it's really just this incredibly drugified world that, that does require us um, to, you know, think in new ways about how to live well.
0: Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more. And even marketing just to women yes. and mothers And the things I take, it's a bit like, I suppose, if you're pregnant, you notice other pregnant women. Now that I'm not drinking, I notice everything to do with alcohol and just the marketing and the amount of money, hence the dollar. And you talked a little bit about that and about even the MDs of today, you know, you go into your primary care guy, you tell him, okay, I have a drinking problem. I'm drinking two bottles a day and I, I just do this daily. The resources that are available out there seems so limited, Mm -hmm. and he's not going to be able to give you a full treatment plan. He's a PCP about all yourself or a woman about other things. We have to go to somebody like you who can recommend then either inpatient or outpatient treatment. Mm -hmm. But is there the fifty percent increase? What sort of situation does it put somebody like yourself in? As far as I want to help, but I'm limited by resources.
1: Well that's part of why I wrote Dopamine Nation because I just thought you know if I can just get this information into the hands of people for the price of a book, then mm. they have potentially have tools that they can use to help themselves because I really do think when people understand both the neuroscience and the wisdom of recovery um, they they can try these experiments you know and see how it goes, and I have gotten emails from readers all over the world who have been motivated by reading Dopamine Nation to, to, to try cutting back or stopping and finding that it's helpful. And so I think just, just getting these ideas out there, you know, in, in the public is, I hope, and I, I think I'm seeing potentially very helpful. And then I, I also want to say, I mean, grassroots communities like yours are really exciting and really powerful people finding each other helping each other creating these new media for connecting and building these sober communities it's super exciting
0: look and and that's exactly why we do it to get look if you can learn one thing from each podcast and I do this. I custom designed my own self maintenance plan because mm-hmm. nobody knows yourself like you really. Right. And I've known of people who've gone in, come back out and it was a waste of a whole lot of money and it really didn't get them very far. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can't criticize every programmer goes, but as I guess, but not everybody can go to passages in Malibu either. Let's just That's face right. it, you mm-hmm. know. Mm -hmm. and then I thought no I can I'm going to do this I'm going to do it and that's when I decided that I was going to do it on my own and this just compulsion over consumption that's a great a great terminology there because the world is so overstimulated you've only got to open up your your email box in the morning right and you're like what am I really concerned with and what can I just put in the trash bin yeah you know you need somebody to moderate your life almost
1: Well, and I think that once we sort of tune in to awareness around the ways in which we're all overstimulated, what we can do is more quickly identify when we become dysregulated. So like, oh, wow, I checked my email the moment I woke up and I became vaguely uncomfortable. And I couldn't really tell you why, but it was something about checking my email. And maybe if I stop and think about it, I can can identify which email it was. Or maybe it was just simply checking my email upon awakening that dysregulated me. So tomorrow I'm gonna try something different. I'm gonna get up and I'm not gonna go on a device and I'm gonna go for a walk and then I'm gonna eat breakfast and then I'm gonna clean my kitchen and I'm gonna make my bed. I'm gonna get myself ready for the day. Maybe I'm gonna meditate or pray or whatever it is. And then I'm gonna check my email and I'm gonna see if I do a little bit better. Um, So I think things like that, just recognizing that we're chronically and constantly overstimulated and that something as simple as checking email can be a stressor. So we have to modify those behaviors. And, you know, as I say in in the book, this is a, it's a grand experiment that we're all engaging in and we have to collect the data and objectively say, okay, this worked and that didn't, and then revise for the next day. And by the way, I do that every day every day it's it's a balancing act every day some days go better than others
0: because you have unexpected things that come into your day as well and it really is for me now it's about compart what is (laughs) the long word compartmentalizing thank you and also prioritizing the same and i have a whiteboard that i write things down on
1: nice
0: because just to say okay and I put that off for a little bit more because that gives me anxiety. Everything you said right there, you open up your emails, you're overwhelmed. <laughs> and I'm anxious before that, you know, I've had my first cup of decaf coffee and it's like, no, 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 no. So now I unsubscribe right. to everything I possibly yep. can yeah. and just take in what I can. And a lot of people laugh because a lot of people say, but I'm addicted to I am sober app. Like, you know, uh, the that's one okay.
1: On. That, that's, that, <laughs> that addiction's all right
0: because that's all about comments and support and everything but because we have a timeline from day zero to 20 years you can spend your entire life on and we do and you you think oh I've got 150 followers and I haven't you know replied to them all it doesn't matter you've got I've learned you've got to let it go control only what's in my that's right my 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 sort of circle as far as I can turn and just it's okay the world yeah. will survive without you panicking. That,
1: It'll be right. okay, just move on, you that's know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Have compassion for yourself, have, have humility, recognize there's only so much you can do on a given day. I mean, even just today, I sort of, um, you know, I woke up kind of grouchy and then I went for a swim and I felt so much better after the swim. I thought, now what can I do to preserve this good feeling? I, and it occurred to me, you know what? I don't need to rush today. There's nothing that I need to rush through. I can take my time and I can think about what I'm doing. And then I just felt this like relief after that. I thought, you know what? Yeah, that's right. I don't need to be rushing through this day. I can just go slowly and be thoughtful and try to stay in this space that has me feeling calm and, and things like that. I mean, every day we can you know, work toward that awareness and that wisdom, which I just think is so good for all of us.
0: I think we call that mindfulness, don't we? Just yeah, try know. and get back in the moment because I was never in the moment. I was always racing, yeah. especially when I was in sales and I had to make budget every day. and da, 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 da. Yeah. I was like on turbo charge. Yeah. And now I can breathe. And I must say, by giving the alcohol away, all that anxiety and stress seems to have disappeared. It's, yeah. You can cope so much better listeners. There are so many benefits. There's a gentleman that I've done – um podcast with on YouTube and he lists the 20 benefits that can happen in the first 30 days Mm, now that's a lot of benefits it's episode 31 it's getting dot 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 sober again (laughs) now if I did a list of the pros and cons they're all my pros guess what my cons are oh if you don't stop guess what you're still on the hamster wheel there's no benefits to continue drinking if you really think about it yeah. There's a 20-minute benefit to 30 minutes. And once that wears off, yeah. you just keep chasing the the, the the dragon or whatever you want to call it, the demon. And, and that's unfortunately what we've learned. And you don't know what you don't know. And this is why this journey has been terrific because it is the community like IAS, people, you know, supporting, talking. It is places like Sobertown where yeah. you just, we've got a world full of information and a world full of sponsors there you know yeah. there's so many people we can reach out to and they are really intelligent people we've got all sorts of in industries and professions it's just fantastic you know so for that I'm so grateful I found this particular app I really am because it's, it really did that and Annie Grace's book and books like yours and then we, we I'm at the stage now I couldn't you know maybe yours in the first week would have been a like oh Joe, right. for okay I'm just trying to stay sober right, you know right, what right. but Uh, now, you know, a few months into I'm like, yes, this is great because you want to know what is going on upstairs. I want to know how this functions. I want to repair the damage I have done. And it's just terrific that there are books like that out there now that can teach you how because that gives you so much hope because this is, it's a long, someone says describes it as a marathon or a journey and the College of Sobriety, but you never actually graduate. And that's just (laughs) basically, that's basically how it is, right? So let's go on. We did the self-binding, um, the space-time meaning, the bit about the broken balance. I don't know, I think you covered a little bit there, maybe.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, what, what that talks about is, um, you know, are, are there some people for whom medications may be necessary yeah. really lifelong in order to be able to restore homeostasis? Um, you know, and whether it's because they started out with a balance tipped to the slightly to the side of pain, or whether it got tipped to the side of pain because of, you know, heavy drug and alcohol use over a long period of time. You know, we do, I mean, we do hypothesize and we do see that with sustained abstinence, there's healing. Um, we do know that neurogenesis or the birth of new neurons continues throughout life. Yeah. But although there are probably. There's probably some permanent brain changes that are irreversible. It's also possible to reroute around those areas and build new neural networks in recovery that compensate for those damaged areas. So recovery is real and happens on a bio- neurological level. But it's also true that some people need, may need some assistance with medications in order to be able to restore homeostasis. So that, that's where I talk about there when I talk about a broken balance It's just sort of like you know that there may be ways in which for some people's pleasure pain balance you know recovery and abstinence alone may not be sufficient and they may need you know a psychiatric or medical intervention to help them
0: and that's the thing they may not just be dealing with abstinence um and you know again with years and years of your tolerance like someone like me who's a daily drinker basically because of my profession the environment itself was always drinks after work, you know. To, 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 to. I didn't sort of get married till I was 40, so for 20 years, supported myself, you get the deal. So, you know, my time was my own. But the thing is, just your anxiety increasingly gets worse. And this is what I found over time. And even when I was taking an antidepressant, it wasn't working. It can't, And I realised they were just, their alcohol was just cancelling out, yeah. right? yeah okay yeah and
1: that's what i I tell patients i say you know these medicines are not going to work as long as you're still drinking yeah yeah it doesn't make any sense
0: no just like you shouldn't you've got to check with your pcp um who if you've got different medications and what's compatible with what um but i do know one thing my blood pressure's gone down and everybody i've spoken to when they stop drinking the first thing that happens is your blood pressure goes down And it is, I couldn't believe it when they took it and it was 120 over 70. When I was taking it, it was, I don't even know if I should tell you. It was 160 (laughs) over triple digits. It was ridiculous. And that's what scared me. I thought I was like an atomic bomb that was going to, it was going to blow up. And so we know, we, we know that people can be over, over prescribed. And that's coming to America. They have, they had ads on television. This is just a bit of a sidestep. And that all these medications for everything, I learned so much about medication that I didn't have any idea because in Australia we don't advertise pharmaceuticals. Uh-huh. So that was an interesting thing here. So I can understand where the opioid crisis came from because power is knowledge and, oh, sorry, knowledge is power. And, you know, that people know so much about medications here. It's quite outstanding, you know, quite outstanding to me. Um, let's move on. We'll go into part three. The pressing on the pain side, and I love this bit about radical honesty. Now, I know I have to be totally honest, as I did. took me a while to get honest with myself. I knew I had a problem, but I wasn't prepared to deal with it. I didn't want to deal with me because I was in such a dark hole. But the honesty now, because really at the end of the day, you're only fooling yourself, right? Right. You can can hide and you can put bottles here or there or whatever else. But I never hid it from my husband. My husband knew and i've been pretty honest about it and all my friends knew in fact to the point where i don't know you know if some of my friends believe me that i've actually stopped because <laughs> i haven't seen them in person yet they're in australia yeah. so they're like well that's good that's good and not many are asking me about it so. <laughs>
1: Well, they're probably but I pretty, know, they're probably the pretty thing. heavy drinkers themselves. So correct, they, they don't want Thank to go you. down that road.
0: Yeah, Dr. Lempke, you've hit the you hit it right, on, right on right on the nail. Yeah. yeah, the nail on the head. Anyway, so yeah, the honesty is very, very you know a big part of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, in my you know 25 years seeing patients, one of the recurring themes that comes up again and again for people in recovery is that they tell me, "Oh, I have to tell the truth. I have to tell the truth about everything, not just about my." substance use but also about little things because once I start lying that sets me up for relapse and I became really fascinated by that and I wondered about the neurobiology behind that you know what what is it about telling the truth that helps people get into and maintain recovery and I concluded that it's a number of different things but probably most important is that the stories that we tell about our lives are not just a way to organize past experience, they also predict future choices. So when we're telling autobiographical narratives that are not true, or or that are are always paint ourselves as the victim, then our future will probably um, repeat itself along those lines, and we will be victimized again, because that's the, the story we're telling. Whereas when we start to acknowledge our responsibility and our role in the bad stuff that happens in our lives then all of a sudden we become empowered in a way that allows us to no longer be the victim and this is just so powerful and I've seen it again and again the other thing about telling the truth is that when we reveal ourselves honestly to others we create intimacy we're afraid people are going to run away from us but in fact they they feel closer to us because they are so happy they're not the only ones that are broken and they have that sense of shared humanity. The other interesting thing is if you look at some of the, um, neuroscientific studies around truth telling, there's a really interesting one that I talk about in the book where they had, um, subjects roll a dice and then, um, actually, no, what was it? Yes, they had subjects roll a dice. No, the, the die were rolled on the computer screen. Okay. And the subjects then, they knew that certain die rolls would be, would get them money and others wouldn't. And they basically just measured how often these individuals told the truth and compared it against the 50% benchmark that they would have expected Mm -hmm. if they really told the truth. And it turns out, you know, folks lied about, well, you know, more than half the time, let's just say people lie. And then what they did was they stimulated these individuals prefrontal cortex using a transcranial magnetic stimulation. And the prefrontal cortex is that part right behind the brain. That's part of our storytelling and future planning and delayed gratification gray matter area. And they found that when they stimulated that area, people lied less, which is really fascinating. So just by stimulating the prefrontal cortex, they got people to lie less in this game. Now they had no idea that the you know, that it had anything to do with lying or that their lying was being detected. So it was a really interesting experiment. And that got me thinking, I wonder if just like stimulating the prefrontal cortex gets people to be more truthful, is it possible that being more truthful stimulates the prefrontal cortex? And mm-hmm. because I think that's exactly what's happening. When we vigilantly tell the truth, what we're doing is basically exercising our prefrontal cortex and in exercising our prefrontal cortex we're strengthening our ability to tell true stories, to delay gratification, and to really know what our pleasure pain balance is doing. Um without which our pleasure pain balance just goes off and running in its own, you know, reflexive way. So I do think there's something neurobiological that's happening when we are um radically and habitually telling the truth.
0: Yeah, wow. It's It feels good sometimes. It's like getting it off your chest, you know? And there's nothing to hide. You're free.
1: That's right. Oh, that's so nice. Yes, so true. I had a patient call me yesterday. He actually moved to Florida and he took a drug test and he was so worried about, you know, the results. And I said, you know what? You don't have anything to hide. You haven't done anything wrong, you know? And then he just calmed down. But it was so hard for him to remember that. You know, he had spent so many years worrying about his lies and his subterfuge. And it's was like, you're right. I haven't done anything wrong. I don't have anything to hide. That's such a good feeling.
0: And I've always said this too. It is that I can now trust myself. Yeah. In yeah. everything that I say, do I know yeah. if I say it, I mean it. Yeah. Because I've got clarity with what I'm That's responding right. to you about. Yeah. And that just knowing that you can go out to a function or just be around Although, you know, not that I used to get totally messy. I had a pretty high tolerance in the end. But that's not even the point. The worry was always there. The what if, if I had that one too many. Because let's face it, you never really do know when you tip over into the balance of a blackout. You just don't. If you could control that, I would have been able to control alcohol and hence I wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other thing, the number nine part is pro-social shame. And, boy, this is one I really want to get away from. I tell everybody in IAS who has a slip, and I like to call them slips instead of relapse because I learned that a slip is just a, a one-day unintentional use. Right. And a relapse is when you just basically abandon your program.
1: Right.
0: And, so, and you go back to the way you were. So I say to everyone, you know, there's no shame, no blame. And I certainly don't judge anybody because this is hard enough as it is.
1: That's right. And,
0: and I know you, I could just tell you, it's just a very understanding. I would love, I wish you were my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. Cause I mean, it's very hard to find somebody that you just, you have to have that trust and faith in them to be able to open your heart and, and tell your truth.
1: Right. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. And, Forming any relationship, isn't it, to have that trust that people won't judge you and, and that they'll, you know, empathize and that they'll help you think through without rejecting you. So so powerful. Yeah, I agree. And, and I, I the, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, shame is so tricky because, um, you know, shame can be the thing that drives us deeper into our addiction as we become more and more isolated. On the other hand, shame is can be a very important pro-social emotion, right? Not wanting, you know, not wanting to be ashamed of ourselves and our behaviors. Part of what drives us to be motivated to get better. So it's, it's interesting. There there are ways in which shame can be used in a group setting that's very, as I say, pro-social and positive. And that is basically, um, you know, saying that, you know, we are responsible, but there's no need to shame us for our actions. We can. There's a pathway. Um, so it's sort of responsibility without judgment, um, I think, is the key piece. And of course, a pathway for redemption and a group which will hold us as we walk that path.
0: Yeah. And you do have to forgive yourselves. I think that's a really big part of it. It's like Oprah says, you know, yesterday doesn't define who you're going to be tomorrow and you must forgive yourself yes. because we can't change that. We have all made mistakes. It is part of learning. But the fact if you're brave enough and, and got that much courage to try this now and give it a go and don't be... Don't be shy to or scared to reach out for help. And that's what I said, even with the IS community, there are so many people that we just learned. I've listened to some people, I'm like, wow, another light bulb, wow, another light bulb. And they've allowed me to design my own yeah. my own program. Yeah. And I'm it's gonna be a continual learning. I mean, I throw myself into this 24-7. I can't learn enough. And the more I learn, the more I'm loving. And the and I realized, I say this a lot, that when I stopped, I thought oh 14 days I'm all cured this is great. <laughs> right really I had no idea that this was just the beginning it was like no the alcohol's out of your system now you've got to deal with everything that's buried there right but again that's all going to take time and um, you know I wrote my own my own nine-month mission statement here And I'd just be interested to see, this is what I have found. I said, I've taken accountability and accepted responsibility for my alcohol use disorder. I renamed my recovery further growth development, and I'm slowly rebuilding my brain and building new freeways and have embraced my new found self-trust. This is my self discovery so far. And that's really, I thought about that and thought about it and thought about it. And that's nine months into it, listeners. That's where I am at. And that's what I will post on my nine month timeline. And that, that's a pretty good mission statement. That's, that's coming a long way. If I can look back at that in two years and three years and four years, then hopefully it'll, you know, it'll be still the same thing, which will be terrific. So I know you're on a time limit. Before we go, is there anything else you want to add?
1: Oh, I just want to say that was a beautiful mission statement, and Thank I think you. you're not just building highways; you're building castles, whole cities. So exciting! Um, very happy for you. Yeah, I mean, I just think recovery is is just this great blessing. You know, it was just so full of wisdom for all of us. So, um, I think it's wonderful what you're doing and what the other people in your community are doing. It's recovery is worth it. It's hard work, but it's worth it.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, I just want to thank you so much for your time today. As I said, I know you're a busy lady. You help so many people out there. And if you and I today can help a few more, then bingo, the job is done for me. And I I could not be happier. And I would welcome you back anytime that you would like. So again, thank you, Dr. Lemke.
1: Well, thank you. It was my pleasure.
0: And readers, do not forget her book is Dopamine Nation by Dr. Anna Lemke. And I will talk to you guys soon. Bye for now. Okay, summary of Dopamine Nation with Dr. Anna Lempke. She talked about the lessons of balance that we should practice, and there are 10 of them. Number one, the relentless pursuit of pleasure and avoidance of pain leads to pain. Number two, recovery begins with abstinence. Number three, abstinence resets the brain rewards pathways, and with it, the capacity to take joy in simpler pleasures. Number four, self-binding creates literal and metacognitive space between desire and consumption, a modern necessity in our dopamine-overloaded world. Number five, medications can restore homeostasis, but consider what we lose by medicating away our pain. Number six, press on the pain side, which sets our balance to the side of pleasure. Number seven, beware of getting addicted to pain. Number eight, radical honesty promotes awareness, enhances intimacy, and fosters a plenty mindset. Number nine, pro-social shame affirms that we belong to the human tribe. And number 10, instead of running away from the world, we can find escape by immersing ourselves in it. The end. Thank you so much. Dr. Anna Linky.